are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. If you've been feeling the itch to travel and explore the world and pandemic is cramping your style, this episode might just be the fix you've been looking for. We mentioned at the start of season two that we'd be launching a new episode format we're calling Chronicles. Think of it as story time. Still relevant to our goal of diversifying sustainability narratives, but a lot more personal. For our first foray into Chronicles, Jessie takes us to Hubei province around the turn of the 21st century. She tells us tales of a rebellious student on a quest for freedom, which ultimately landed her in the garment industry. Is the garment industry China's version of a Wild West? If you're on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? No worries. We also have a love-hate relationship with social media. Sign up to our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. And don't forget, we have a new initiative, Loose Threads. Think of it like anonymous questions and answers between people who, for lots of reasons, could never have open and candid conversations. If you have questions you'd like to ask a fashion supplier, submit it anonymously at www.manufacturedpodcast.com slash loose threads. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Let's start with Jesse, the university student. You were a bit of a rebel. You've described it to me before as bored, dissatisfied, skipping classes. Why was this? Tell me about this time in your life, Jesse. <laughs> okay. Um, to talk about that, I needed to briefly describe my high school life. That was the uh, 90s. So um, going to a domestic university or a college is almost the only good option for lots of young people and their families in China. By doing so, people would have a much bigger chance to find a good job and settle in the cities. Um, back then, there were only few good universities and the entrance exam was very hard. Yet the population of uh, students were much bigger than today. So the competition was really fierce. Then every minute of my day was planned for study. A typical day started from getting up at 6 a.m., arriving at school around 7.30 a.m., 40 minutes of study, then full of four classes on the row, then lunch break in the afternoon, another three classes on the row, then two hours evening study in the school, once back home, another roughly two hours of study. So it was really like I was nailed in front of the desk. I was forbidden from watching TV or reading any other books. There were no other activities except working on textbooks and homeworks. So I had lots of expectations about university life. I eventually went to a good one, but after first a few months, I was very disappointed. I realized that it was just an upgrade version of high school life without fundamental differences. My typical day of first-year university life started from 7 a.m., woken up by a loud school broadcasting, then 8 a.m. What, what did they say on the broadcasting? Oh, it's uh, it's very, uh, I would say, I would call it as very communist style. It's 
it's nothing. It's just uh, calling everyone, get up, doing some sports, doing some exercise in case you, you, uh, you, you should doing some exercise in the morning. It's good for your body. Yeah. Very, very punctual. Really like uh, huh. 7am or yeah, always 7am, no matter it's, it's still dark or already bright. So I was always waking up by a loud school broadcasting. Then, um, it sounds very much like a uh, military. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like uh, university. <laughs> then 8 a.m. In the, in the classroom. And then again, four classes on the roll, lunch break, another two or three classes in the afternoon, probably another two hours of study in the evening, as we had lots of classes and homework in the first year. And we had to live in the dormitories where the power was cut off at 11 p.m. every night. This is really makes me feel we live in a military base. And, and why they do that? Well, they give very good reasons. Again, like a parenthood. The management style is really like a parenthood. They're saying this is uh, for the good of you in case you, you stay too late in the evening. You didn't sleep enough. You didn't sleep well. So we cut off power for your good. So they cut off power every night at 11 p.m. If you still want to read something, you need candles. And we use candles. And that was sort of dangerous, you know, if you fell into sleep with the candles still on. <laughs> so, and then there was the student union and all sorts of clubs in the university. But in my eyes, the student union and all these clubs were very uh, bureaucratic. Um, and, and the leading positions were almost all occupied by, occupied by men. I didn't feel very comfortable to join those activities. I feel it's just a hierarchy system. And as a, as a woman, I was on a weaker position, of course, as all the leading positions were just the men. So I expected university teachers will open our eyes greatly by throwing us interesting questions and giving us a list of books to read and so on. That didn't happen either. So in the first year, every activity in the classroom was all organized around textbooks. What I hate the most is to read the textbook sentences by sentences in front of everyone. I feel like really we, are, we were just in high school again. So very quickly in the second year, I started to drop out from classes. I think I eventually skipped 30 to 50% of the classes. Well, I, ma I managed to pass out exams though. So I spent lots of time hanging out with friends observing people, thinking about life in a subconscious way. I think that was the phase I slowly came to understand who I am and what I wanted to be. As an effect, I didn't join a student union or any clubs. I didn't apply for party membership. I'm not a party member. Only maintained a deeper connection with very few people. More specifically, I made two good friends during four years. I don't think I have credit to criticize or judge the education I had in university. I mean, half of the time I was out of the classroom. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on there after the first year. Sometimes I uh, I was wondering, maybe um, handling boredom is part of the ap academic training. <laughs> anyway, mm. uh, in my eyes, the first two to three years of uh, campus life is a sort of bilateral selection. I didn't manage to go through that process of selection. I didn't select that direction. That process also didn't select me. 
What do you mean by lateral selection? Um, mm. You see, in China, and I think in Western, it's the same, just in a, in a different way. You see, in China, the university's education is a sort of a state-owned business. Um, so people set up education system is actually a process to select a specific type of mentality or a specific type of people that eventually they can go through the process. They become someone useful. As for useful to whom? That's the question. So in my eyes, this four years university life is like a process of uh, selecting. And um, you see, um, at the beginning, it's just an entrance exam. Anyone pass that ex entrance exam can get in. But then through all these classes, through the broadcast in the morning, through the power cut in the evening, through the party membership application, through the student union or all sorts of clubs, basically uh, it's like a filter. So after... After a while, after certain steps, eventually a specific of type of people will get reward. And by getting reward, mm -hmm. it's like they get selected people who are useful for the party, for the government, for the country. You know, be useful, think, but not critical thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, clever to choose the right side. Uh, but <laughs> so, and... And, and, and once you gain this, this type of view and you look at the university life, you will see everything quite differently. And I think that is the thing I didn't realize when I was there, but just realized after. At that time, I just knew I didn't want to do this, 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 this. So I realized right. this is a bilateral selection and I didn't select that direction. The process also didn't select me. So when you were thinking about what comes next after university, you had three options. You could have continued with your studies. You could have applied overseas for to study abroad, or you could find a job. And you've already alluded to this a little bit, but I'm curious to hear more about it. But why did you eliminate the first two options of continuing with your studies or applying overseas? And what were the barriers to choosing the third option, which was was finding a job. Hmm. Talking about my life choices in university, that's the, that's the part that gives me a very strong feeling. Um, I really want to share a big picture to include my parents' generation, as that's very important. Uh, my parents were born at 40s. As you might know, China went through lots of wars since end of 19th century, basically since 1890s till 1950s, roughly. It means the generation of my grandparents experienced the war and the hunger most of the time in their life. It also means the childhood of my parents were fulfilled with memories of war, hunger, and their teenage were with all sorts of political movements and a very limited supply of materials. Um, my parents had me quite late, so shortly after I was born, we had color TV, fridge, and washing machine. In the 80s of China, uh, you don't have so much inequality in, in fortune, so basically everyone is, is more or less poor at the same level. So in the 80s it's of uh, China, it's quite uh, representative to have color TV, fridge, and washing machine to stand for a good life. So shortly after I was born, we had this 
And then if you compare my parents' childhood and the teenage to my childhood and the teenage, you can see there is a huge gap in terms of the living conditions. I never felt hungry. When I say this sentence, I feel funny. I feel absurd that to say I never felt hungry because it's so, it's so take it for granted. It's so, it's so natural. It's so normal. Of course, you'll never feel hungry. Why, why would you feel hungry? But that was the memory of my parents and of my grandparents. So I never felt hungry. I had lots of books and toys when I was a kid and I received a birthday gift from my parents. My generation so far hasn't experienced any war. There was a war between China and Vietnam at the late of uh, something like uh, 1980s, but that was, that was very, very, at a very small scale and happened only on the border, as I remember. So huge part, like 99% of the population and the country actually in a kind of peace mood. So my generation so far really hasn't experienced any war. And I think life during the 40s and the 60s of China left a mark on my parents. And probably the whole generation carried the same mark from which they put security as top priority. That deep down, they are still in a survival mode. It's very important to secure what you already get from life, far more important than anything else for them. As for me, I was born in a time that there is no war, no hunger, no political movements, but with enough food, toys, books, schoolmates, color TV, washing machines, fridge, traveling to other places, even when I was a kid. Later, we have computers and so on. So if someone is born to have those materials or condition already around, it's very hard to understand why I needed to secure these conditions. For me, exploring all sorts of possibilities in life is something I'm really passionate about, which looks very risky and alien to my parents. What would you say to like Americans? Because as an American, you, if you say, oh, no political movements, the first thing they'll probably think about is like Tiananmen Square, right? Ah, right. Hey, that's a very interesting question. I never thought about it or even imagined it could be a question before you asked me. Um, okay, I see, I see how to share my understanding. First, you are right. There were political moments in the 80s, 90s, and in the past two decades. decades. But mainland Chinese usually don't call those activities as political moments. Even they are. Instead, you will hear people use words like demonstration or protest. The government will use mass incident or mass gathering, for instance, Tiananmen incident. This is how they call it. So why? Why we differentiate those political movements? The reason, I think, is because those are totally two different types. When a political movement is initiated, uh, motivated, organized, and supported by the government, the impact to citizens' private life is uh, enormous, totally incomparable to a political movement initiated by citizens. My parents were married in the 60s, I think. My mom told me once they had to leave home at 7 a.m., went to where they worked, joined the political activities organized by the state, then back home at midnight. They never cook. Everyone would have meal where they worked with their colleagues. And yeah, right. Um, you know, at that time, when when people want, wanted to get married, actually they need the approval from the state, from the state 
actually first of Flam where they work, then Flam the state. So basically, they needed to report who they were dating at that moment, and then eventually they needed to ask approval for if they can marry that person. So this this is also part of that political movement or the public life. So and 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 when you face all these political movements in the 50s, 60s, and the 70s, they cannot say no. They can't say no. No one would say no. And I guess that, I guess this can be very alien to our listeners. Maybe you can say it this way. The political movements initiated by the government from the 50s to the end of 70s eventually intruded everyone's life and turned one's own private into part of the public life. The boundary between public life and private life was very blurry. And I think at some moments, the border was completely gone. Now, thinking about all this, I wonder if that was the root cause of a general conflict between my generation and the parent generation. And that's why I consider it's a great luck for us not having such political moments in our time, especially referred to Rose happened in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, initiated by the government. For me, the gap between my parents' generation and my generation is really huge in terms of not just the materials, not just the living conditions, but including all these factors. So back to the third year for my university, I had three choices, like preparing entrance exam for master's degree, finding a job one year after, applying to study in overseas school. my parents have no requirement of my higher education level, but they were very happy to support me as far as I can go. However, when I when I looked around, watching the interaction between my classmates and their future professors, I had a feeling that a master degree um, in domestic universities uh, is probably just another version of university life. I already felt my university life was just an upgrade high school life. If master degree is just a higher version of my university life, then there's just no point for me to spend another three years in an every tower. So I was thinking about to apply an overseas education. Um, Back then, we had very limited access of information. Internet was not very developed at that moment. It was very hard to know exactly to choose which school, which direction, which country, if you didn't have any relatives or connections already abroad. Plus, um, I need a bank statement of 100,000 RMB. So at that time, 100,000 RMB is roughly like $10,000. I need this bank statement to prove Financially, I was capable to support the education. That was one of the must-have documents. I, I didn't have that money, but my parents had. But exhausting me already, just by thinking about how to convince them it's good to send me to a foreign country to, for study. My parents were influenced by the traditional part of Chinese culture. They felt strongly responsible to my happiness. For them, working in the system basically working for the state, I mean, living somewhere close to them, marrying a reliable man that they knew, having kids, living in a big apartment with car and other materials, that is good life for them, and probably the only version of a good life. They said as their parenthood responsibility to assure, to assure me living that kind of life. But for me, this is unacceptable. 
to let them arrange my life or decide what's good for me. It's not about the version of life, but fundamentally about the power of define. Who can define what is good in life for whom? For me, I am the one and, and the only one can define what is good for me in my life. This is totally deviant for my parents. In their ideas, as responsible parents, they should look after me, use their wisdom to decide what's good for me. Till the moment, you know, like the traditional movie, putting my hands to a man's hands, like handing me over to a reliable man. Until that happens, they will decide what's good for me. <laughs> as there is, yeah, as you can understand, it's, it's I think it's cross-culture. <laughs> I don't think it's just the Chinese or traditional Chinese. I think it's sort of cross-culture. But anyway, this there there is always love and care in between my parents and me. So I, I even didn't mention it to my parents that I wanted to go for a higher education in the US or Europe. Part of the reason is convincing them that's good for me can be very exhausting as their version of good life and my version of good life are just not compatible. Part of the reason is if I let my parents support me financially, they will get involved into making decisions. Which country, which university, which field, what kind of jobs and where to live after and so on and so on. Eventually, my life will become just a battlefield of whose will I share live my life according to. So I just give up looking for a higher education in domestic universities or overseas universities. Then there's only one option left, which fitted what I wanted most at that moment. Freedom, autonomy, financial independence. But then the types of jobs I can apply is not as wide as it looks like. As you might know, I was a student of foreign language. My class spent four years on English and two years on Japanese. At that time, China had a great demand on young talents who can speak foreign language as a fresh educator. Basically, you can apply any entry positions which required a skill of English speaking. Roughly, just want to give some notes, we're talking about two big economic sectors here, state-owned business and private business. By saying state-owned business, we mean heavy industry, for instance, like mining, metal smelting. And state-owned business also mean industries related to state uh, strategic, like energy, electricity, hydropower, petrol, and, and also it refers to, uh, it refers to public services, like public schools and hospitals. So working in rural sectors, we call it as working in the system. The government usually provides very good conditions and welfare associated to the positions. The government will also get involved into the management though. Um, that's, the, that's the characters actually, one of the characters about state-owned business. The government will also get involved into the management. So jobs in those sectors, uh, in this sector, are really what my parents want me to apply for. And by saying private business, we mean light industry, something tightly related to daily life, but usually in a smaller scale, like, for instance, garment industry, or factories making bicycles, or firms providing advertisement services, and all sorts of uh, retail business. The government usually put very little control on this sector, but more likely develop like a free market in US or Europe. So when I look at myself, I sort of figured out I probably can just get a job in private business sector. To apply a job instead on the business sector, I better to be a party member. 
it can help me to be selected. If if I'm not a party member, very likely I will be sorted out in the first round selection, which I figured out this is not something fit me and I don't think I fit that process or environment either. So plus my um, school marks were really not good, you know, as a, as a student skip. Yeah, half of the classes. For instance, as I said, the chances is really small for me to get selected if I apply a job that requires party membership. So you had two barriers. One was that you weren't to, to working in a state-owned industry. One was that you weren't a party member. And two was that you didn't have good grades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So basically, as I said just now, when you look at the selection process, you realize uh, I appeared not very useful <laughs> to state-owned business <laughs> sector. As my screw marks really not good, so I appeared not useful, and I appeared too much, too much thinking. I, I often mm. receive feedbacks from my uh, schoolmates that I think too much, and on top of that, I was not a party member. And uh, deep down, with myself, when I faced myself, I knew I wouldn't do it. I just, I just, I just don't want to do it. I just cannot, sort of cannot do it. Mm. So. So eventually I started to work. Uh, I, I tried my luck in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is, uh, if you, if you knew a little bit about the, the history, Shenzhen is the first, uh, I don't know how you call it in English. It's a special zone at the, f- yeah, the first mm. special zone, first special economic developed zone in China. Yeah. So the policies are very different over there. Um, how to say you can imagine that is, uh, is a is a zone with a small government. So the the other part of China with big government only there you have a zone with a small government and they also learn lots of um, management experiences uh, from Hong Kong. Shenzhen became a special economic developed zone. The policies are different, atmosphere is different. Uh, as a business to run there has different policies, different benefits, and so on. So eventually, I, I tried my luck in Shenzhen. I started to work for a Hong Kong-based consultancy company in Shenzhen. The company provides ISO 9000 training and consultancy to mostly electronic products manufacturers and garment manufacturers in Dongguan. Dongguan is famous for producing, for instance, smartphones, toys, shoes, and garments. And then two years after, I quit and found a new job in a third-party inspection company whose core business is right in garment production. And that that was how I stepped into fashion supply chain. And um, when I look back all these years' experiences, I... um, I I felt sometimes I compare the life choices I made with something imagined. For instance, how about if I become a teacher or working in a state-owned business? I found I really enjoyed all the offices and the companies I worked so far in government business. It's it's really enjoyable. It's much less bureaucratic, much less hierarchy, more equal more open to different ideas, different approaches, different personalities, providing much more opportunities to people from the countryside, which means a lot for Chinese due to a well, a very special household registration system and giving much more respect and spaces to women comparing to other industries. Maybe that's the reason it's so common to see a woman on a high management position in garment industry in China than other business. So I'm curious, like, of course, everyone's path is unique. 
Um, but I'm curious, like if you think about when, cause you've spent a lot of time working in the fashion industry in China. And I'm curious, like when you reflect on your colleagues and the types of people that you were working with who were working in like not as factory workers, but as management or in office jobs within the fashion industry in China, like was it, was their path, do you think similar to yours in any way? What, what is it reasonable or fair or maybe to, to draw any sort of like generalizations from your story. And I, I, I want to reiterate, like everyone's path is unique. So I don't, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations. So when I think of my former colleagues and people I knew in those years, I also see the similarities in our past. We usually don't have a degree of higher education. It's often university or college in offices and technical school education in factories. It's very common that many of us come from small cities, towns, and countrysides, and coming from families who don't have strong social capital, meaning parents can't really arrange jobs in the system, meaning the kids need to make a life on their own. And the interesting part is government business in China also open arms to people coming from the other end. You know, people from families running business, the families are usually rich or very rich. And many of them come from big cities and received education in US or Europe or Australia. However, there is one thing in common for those two groups. Most of us are not party members. I don't have any impression that any of my former colleagues is a party member. Maybe there is one or two, but very likely none of them. So if I summarize, Chinese in government business might look very different from the appearance, like from rich families to very unprivileged countryside families, graduated from overseas universities or unknown technical schools, coming from big cities or small towns. But deep down, there is something in common that uh, I would say it's like, um, don't believe in fate, more believe in luck and personal efforts. Not going well with or even going against a bureaucratic process or a hierarchy environment, put freedom as a high value to run after, make a dynamic and unprescribed path to success. So that is what I understand the similarity for for this group of people. It's interesting because when I hear this story, it just really strikes me that this is a a story that would just really resonate with so many, um, well, two things that it's probably, at least if I speak for myself, it's counter to what I would have assumed your story was, or even maybe your colleagues' stories were. And also at the same time, a story that like so- somehow really resonates with the American story, this idea of like West the Wild Earth. West. Yeah. Yeah. The Wild West, people who are out to like, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, do their own thing despite social expectations. Like this is a narrative that I think re- really resonates with a lot of Americans. And it's, um, yeah. And it's so funny to hear that like coming from a context where I wouldn't have expected it at all. And maybe that says more about me than anything else. And the, you know, how, how, how little I know about the world, but. <laughs> but, but that's it. That is really it. Um, the early, 
the early of the economic reform in China or the early, I don't know, um, 80s, 90s, let's say, 80s and 90s together is really like uh, the Western world of US, the wild west of US. Uh, not many things uh, set up yet. So people are just trying mm. with all sorts of people get so excited about the new possibilities and the opportunities. So they're just trying all sorts of things at the same time. And I'm um, in the and ways um, to find their freedom. Yes. Right? And the ways, yes. And the ways to find their freedom. And for the first time, I think in maybe hundred of years in the first time, the normal Chinese, the common Chinese had a chance to get rich. I mean, that is exciting enough. It's like the gold rush in US, I would say. So, so, and uh, I'm in government business. Yeah, that's very important. You know, this industry has very little control from the government. So basically, you are doing whatever you are thinking about to do with very little, I don't know, interview from the government Mm. or control. So how do you think this profile or this drive for freedom, like, affects sustainability goals within the fashion industry or like what does it mean for how we might think about what sustainable like how we should do sustainability hmm i found i say western a lot but you know i I really don't like it (laughs) but i know but it's very convenient right it's really convenient when you use the word like that i had a i i struggled with it too like i had a professor when i was in university who was palestinian and he was when in all of our papers, he would say, you know, if you're going to use Western or Eastern, you have to put quotation marks around it, which is true. And so when I write, I try to do that. But it's hard on the podcast because I almost find myself putting up air quotes. But but, um, yeah, but, you know, obviously people can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a convenient. So let's just say um as a concept and a practice coming from Western, sustainability in garment business is usually associated with a set of established documents, processes, and audits to make sure both sides agree on a certain type of practice. Basically, I'm saying sustainability in, in garment business is a kind of through all this process and documents and audits, basically is saying, okay, we agree those activities can be called as a sustainability. Other activities cannot be called as sustainability. So this is my understanding. Right, like very, very prescriptive. Yes, exactly. Very like defined. Yes. Very kind of regimented. Yes, defined. So if that is the sustainability in government business, then in my eyes, the whole thing is like a train and a railway. It's one thing. You cannot... You cannot separate them. However, for Chinese who share those characters, train and the real way is not one thing, not exactly. So when a Chinese garment supplier receives requirement from a sustainability team of a brand, the first thing they do is they try to understand very well what the brand or the client care most about. If they think what you care most is the train, they will make sure there is a train running on whatever they have. If they think what you care most like is a the, road or, you know, something yeah. that maybe isn't quite a railway or a track. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, you, what you care most is a train, right? There is a train. So if, if they think what you care most is the railway, they will make sure everything is running on a railway. But beneath the shell, that thing is a train or a bus or a car. It doesn't really matter for them. They consider they delivered mm-hmm. what you care most. Why, why do you bother the rest? So if sustainability in fashion business is achieved by 
following established documents and process, I think Chinese working in banks might click very well with this requirements. For them, following a standard procedure or a process or a document is the key of success and guarantee of security. They um, it can be very well at control documents and processes. Following a prescriptive process is something very natural for them. And I'm not saying Chinese garment supplier can't follow a prescriptive process. It's just they can, but very likely they will understand something else. For instance, I gave an example of uh, SA 8000. You know, SA 8000 is Social Accountability 8000, a widely applied social compliance audit. So, um, and it has very detailed requirements and control of documents and processes. So if a Chinese government supplier understands SA 8000 is a must-have certificate for their clients or potential clients, the management will set up a team and provide a training to make sure documents, processes are ready to pass the audit. As for the actual management style or how they actually practice it in daily work, it can be just a different story. Right. And I... So it's like, the question is, how do you create space maybe for, and I think... Matthew talked about this when we talked to Matthew in episode nine of season one, talked about this as well. Like, how do you create space for for having a conversation about what the goal should be and coming to a consensus about what the goal should be and then giving a little bit more freedom for figuring out how to get there? And maybe it's not a train and a railway to continue with your analogy maybe it's something else yeah i was just thinking sometimes i would just imagine as i haven't um, experienced uh, similar cases so i just imagine what if uh, a sustainability team as Matthew described in in his interview what if just give a goal for instance like uh, this year the goal is to reduce this much greenhouse gas and just to set up the goal and of course needs to describe a little bit about don't. So what you shouldn't do. And by setting up don'ts and by setting up the goal, maybe that, that would fit very well Chinese uh, suppliers in government business as they are good at finding paths in blank. Um, mm. Instead of giving them a very prescriptive process that they, they, they misunderstood, this is what you care most. And then they focus mm. on that process, on the documents, on the certificates. They're just over focused on that. And forget the real purpose is not a piece of paper of certificate. The real purpose is, is creating something really sustainable for the planet, the people and the business. They could forget that. It's, fun. it's funny because I think like that kind of forgetting, I also see that or have felt that sometimes um, like when I talk to people working within sustainability, like, you know, a job is really prescribed and you have certain things that you need to do and then... You're like, well, but wait a minute. What was the reason why this was important in the first place? And you kind of, it kind of gets decoupled, right? Yeah, because it's very convenient to stick to a prescriptive process. You just stick to yeah. it. You know, your your job is done, and you know, you know the standard. But I think it also requires trust, right? Trust that we have the same understanding. If you give people more space for figuring out how something should be done, and if you're less prescriptive, it requires trust that we're aligned and on the same page about what the goal is. And 
maybe the absence of trust is something about the absence of mutual understanding. Because when we don't understand why somebody is behaving in a certain way or their behavior doesn't make sense to it to us, then we use sort of frames of reference that make sense to us to explain it. Like, well, they don't care. I would feel very happy if my uh, personal little stories could provide a bit more understanding about uh, what those group of Chinese thinking, I mean, their mentality, how they would react, what do they think about all this practice. I would be very happy. It's important、mm-hmm. to understand the other one. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.